Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 239 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and I'm joined by Jill. How's it going? I did it again. Yep. <laughs> Do you want me to start over? Or is nope. it okay? All right. Jill forgot to check levels with because, as we mentioned, we always flip back and, board, back and forth. She's editing this one, so. And we were in conversation. I just. Yeah, we were just having a conversation. We were <laughs> venting about things and basically yelling in this room, so I didn't really have an accurate depiction of how loud everything was going to be. Anyway, how's it going? It's good. Good, good. Um, We're recording this on Thursday. Yeah. So So you're about to go to New Orleans? I'm about to go to New Orleans. So if you... If you hear this on on Monday, you'll still be there. Yes, if you hear this on Monday, I'll still be there. You can come by the Overdrive booth, um, 3715, and say hello. Yeah. If you're in Cleveland and you see me, you can say hi, too, but I don't have a booth in the city of Cleveland. I'll just be here. <laughs> you should get one. Yeah, just like a permanent booth somewhere in, like, Hingetown or somewhere. Yeah, let's do it. Um, for listeners, the overwhelming majority of you who aren't in Cleveland, Hingetown is a little hipster street in Cleveland that has decided to give itself its own name of a of a neighborhood. It is, it is literally a neighborhood within a neighborhood. Yeah, it's a singular street, and it is a very cool street. There's good stuff on there, but they're just like, we're Hingetown now. And I'm like, you can't just do that. It's okay. I have a lot of feelings about Hingetown. <laughs> I do, too. Um, anyway, uh, what is today's episode all about? So today's episode is an interview I did with Lisa Genova, who is a best-selling author of the book um, Still Alice, which was turned into a movie with Julianne Moore. And her latest book, um, Every Note Played, is out now. What I didn't know, there are two things I did not know prior to interviewing Lisa. One, she's actually a neuroscientist. Oh, whoa. So all of her books um, focus on a different sort of neurological disorder, and she kind of examines what that looks like. Nice. The other thing is that still Alice was self-pubbed. I didn't know that. And then picked up later. That's I amazing. did not know that either. Wow. So it can happen. Um, uh, yeah, yeah she, it was it was self-pubbed, and then, yeah, publisher came along later and wanted to publish it. By the way, since I had a really hot take last episode about Julie Roberts, I should say I love Julianne Moore. She's a wonderful person. She is a wonderful person, and, and she won an Oscar for Still Alice. Being so. awesome. <laughs> yeah, so um, Lisa and I talked about sort of her research process, her writing process, how she even started writing um again neuroscientist um yeah and all that fun stuff that's super interesting Mm -hmm. it's like i always say when we meet people it's like how dare you be this good at multiple things i know she she has like some super popular ted talk too that you can find um, about alzheimer's um that you can find on her website and ted talk places and all that stuff nice uh yeah and if people want to get a hold of us, you can always go to professionalbooknerds.com. That's where you'll find a email address for us, which is professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. You can join our reading community on Viber through there. We 
I have a bunch of people in there and I really enjoy. I think my favorite part about the Viber community is uh, you and I don't really do a ton of like Twitter, Instagram on the weekends when we're like, we're just a little lazy about it, which is, you know, whatever. Uh, but it's really cool to get these messages in the our reading community over the weekend and see what people are reading and I like interacting with people there. It's really fun. So you can do that. And then you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at ProBookNerds, which is a nice way to track us down. Again, usually during the week, but we we check to see if we have any messages on the weekend and we'll respond. And if that happens. We do. Um, yeah. So there's also, we still have a poll on our website, I think, about how people are reading if you want to check that out. Um, and just because we haven't asked in a really long time, if you haven't given us a rating or review in iTunes and you want to give us five stars and a quick like note about what you like about the show, we would greatly appreciate it because it helps people find us more easily. I just thought of this. Speaking of self-pub books, you and I were on the Kobo Writing Life podcast. Uh, Kobo is one of our sister companies, and we got to talk all about um, sort of overdrive and how overdrive and, and self-published authors can kind of get into the overdrive system and yeah, so I'm really glad you got you brought that up. It was really fun. We normally will talk about Overdrive like in passing during intros and stuff, but it was fun to really get to like for an hour chat with the people from Kobo Writing Life about kind of the inner workings of how Overdrive works and how it could work if you're an independent author and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, definitely go check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast um, and subscribe to them. You can listen to more than just our episode. Obviously, they have lots of cool stuff going on there. So. Plus, as you mentioned, they're a sister company of ours. Fiber is a sister company of ours. Man, we're so good at bringing we do. corporate synergy. synergy. That's right. Hear that racket in, folks? Jill and I deserve a raise. Um, anything else you think people should know about? I think that's everything. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoy this lovely interview that Jill did on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Jill, and today I'm joined by Lisa Genova, New York Times bestselling author of Still Alice and Left Neglected. She's a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard, and her TED Talk, What You Can Do to Prevent Alzheimer's, has been viewed over 3 million times. Her latest book, Every Note Played, is out now. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Every Note Played? Sure. So... All of my books are about someone living with a neurological disease or disorder. And so the disease for this book is ALS, which is um, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. So the book is about a concert pianist, Richard, who um, becomes diagnosed with ALS. And his ex-wife, Karina, who uh, had wanted to be a jazz pianist but never, it never sort of panned out for her, she becomes his reluctant caregiver. So the story is, of course, about what it's like to live and die with ALS. Um, I think that you know millions of us have dumped buckets of ice water over <laughs> our heads, so we all have sort of a consciousness of those three letters. But unless someone in your family or someone close to you has been, has been affected, I don't think most of us really know what goes on behind that curtain. So I pull that curtain back and we see what ALS is like. But then the story is also about, you know, so it can't just be about ALS, or I, I, I could, you know, put this in the Journal of Neuroscience. It's a novel. <laughs> so it has to be a story. 
And so the story is about, you know, so while ALS paralyzes Richard, um, you, it attacks your motor neurons that feed your muscles. So all of your voluntary muscles in your whole body eventually become paralyzed. So you can no longer walk or feed yourself or toilet yourself or speak or eventually breathe. Um, and that's terrifying to imagine. And yet, how many of us are emotionally paralyzed in some way in our lives without ALS? So in this story, it explores the ways that maybe these characters are stuck in the past. Um, they're trapped in excuses or blame or regret or fears that don't allow them to, especially Karina, to live the life she really wants to live. And so while there's no cure for ALS yet, um, I explore, you know, what ways can these characters be healed? Uh, and it really has to do with their relationship. So that's the story. Um, I, I have to kind of get the big question out of the way, which is how did you go from your PhD in neuroscience to being a novelist? Uh, well, the quick and cute answer is got divorced. Um, and the, the longer answer has to do with that. So back in 1998, my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I was a neuroscientist at the time. And as a neuroscientist in my family, I tried to learn everything I could about this disease so that we could better understand it and better take care of her. And everything I read was written from the perspective of an outsider. So they were, I read, I read papers and textbooks and, and books written by scientists and clinicians and caregivers and social workers. And so while it was helpful to a point, it lacked the perspective of the person with it. And so it lacked, for me, the answer to the question, what does it feel like to have this? And the answer to that question really gets to empathy versus sympathy. So while I could have sympathy for my grandmother, I really had a hard time getting to empathy. I could feel bad for her, but I couldn't feel with her. And I, the aha moment for me was, well, fiction gives us a chance to walk in someone else's shoes, right? Like narrative is our chance at, at exploring empathy. And so I thought I would write a novel someday about a woman with Alzheimer's and tell it from her perspective. And I always imagined that would be way in my distant future when I'm retired and it'd be a nice little hobby and no real risk or anything. Um, but then I got divorced and my life kind of got turned upside down for a while. This was back when I was 33. I'm 47 now. Um, and at the time, it just seemed like my whole life was like, I couldn't imagine what was going to happen next. And I was pretty heartbroken and felt like I had failed and, I felt a bit ashamed, and there was a lot going on there. But sort of trying to rebuild my life, um, I took a pause and a moment to think about, well, what do I really want to do? If I could do anything I wanted, what would that be? And the answer that I couldn't get away from was, I want to try to write that novel. So I did this very sort of reckless, scary, weird thing, and I didn't go back to my neuroscience background as I had always known it. I stepped into this in the world of fiction and, and lo and behold, it has become my career. Um, you had mentioned that in, the, in you know, the beginning that all of your books sort of examine this intersection um, between neurological disorders and sort of everyday life. Um, what made you want to write about ALS? Uh, so this, this story began in a personal way. So the... Uh, a man named Richard Glasser, he was the co-writer uh, and co-director of the film Still Alice. He was diagnosed with ALS just a couple of months before he read my book. So he and his husband, Wash, who was the other co-writer and co-director, 
um, decided to go ahead and make this movie knowing it would probably be the last thing Richard would ever do. And so I got to know him very well through the course of preparing. Um, I consulted on the script with them and, and getting to set and being on the set with them and watching Richard um, show such tenacity and courage and grace in co-directing this film for 12 hours a day by typing with one finger on an iPad. So at that point, his uh, voice was, he, mm-hmm. he had no voice. He was paralyzed um, there, and one of his arms was paralyzed. So I asked him shortly after we finished filming if he would mind if I wrote about ALS next. And um, so of course, he said, you know, absolutely go ahead. And, and um, we communicated um, right up Close to up until his death, he died a couple of weeks after Juliet Moore won the Oscar. Do all of your books have a kind of personal? Have you the 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 disorders that you you choose to write about? Do you have a kind of personal collection uh, connection with somebody like this? Yeah, it doesn't always start that way. I do a ton of research for all of my books, so I get to know very intimately a lot of people who are living and breathing this uh, these journeys but no so 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 Alice began with my grandmother um the next book left neglected which you mentioned um I didn't know anyone with left neglect with left neglect before I began writing that book um that began as a curiosity inspired by there's a a quick three-page story the man who mistook his wife for a hat by Oliver Sacks I'd read back in college, and it was about a man with less than neglect, and I was fascinated and intrigued and, and wondering, how does someone walk through a whole world only aware of half of it? And and then similarly, as a graduate student in neuroscience, I'd come across quick clinical vignettes of a patient with left side neglect or hemispatial neglect, and just wondered, it would just be such a small snippet, and, and I just wanted to know what the whole life was like. So I used that the opportunity in my second book to explore that. Um, with Love Anthony, which is about a nonverbal boy with autism, um, that was that came from a very personal place. Um, my cousin Tracy's son, Anthony, has autism, and he's at that end of the spectrum. And I, again, I like to write stories about people who who tend not to be seen and heard, um, who tend to be sort of ignored or feared or misunderstood. And, and I think that story has the opportunity to, to sort of bring those folks back into community and make the unfamiliar familiar. And so there's a lot of stories out there about autism um, in the sort of Asperger's end of the spectrum. So we have great stories by um, Daniel Tannett or Temple Grandin, and uh, but few, few, if any, are really told from the point of view of, of someone with autism who doesn't speak. So that was Love Anthony. Um, and then inside the O'Briens, there's no personal connection to that one to begin with. That's about um, a family dealing with Huntington's disease. And my interest in that was my first job out of college, I was a lab technician at Mass General East in the Charlestown Navy Yard doing research on drug addiction. And right down the hall in February of 93, all these you know, nerdy neuroscientists start screaming and yelling and celebrating and and we geeky neuroscientists don't normally ask like that. The whole hallway gets kind of quiet and still. I'm like, what's going on? What just happened? <laughs> and it turned out that these folks had just isolated the genetic mutation that causes Huntington's. I remember wow. getting, I remember the, I remember the goosebumps. I was 22. I wanted to become a neuroscientist and I knew I was witnessing a historic moment in all of science because I knew that only one thing causes Huntington's and it's that 
mutation. Mm-hmm. And so I remember thinking, oh, my God, they're going to cure this disease. I just witnessed the beginning of it. I still believe I witnessed the beginning of it, but here we are, what, you know, 20-something years later, and we still have no treatment and no cure for that disease. So I really wanted to write about Huntington's um, to bring some much-needed urgent awareness around this illness that most people don't know much about. I'm really excited that's going to be the next movie for me, so um, where I'm in, in the process of putting that together now. Oh, wow, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, um... I'm curious about your research process, because obviously you have a, a background in um, these types of diseases, but, you know, how how did you go about researching ALS for a renal blade? Okay, so the process is similar for all of my books. So I, I try to do my homework first, so I read everything I can that seems relevant about the disease. So for ALS, I read medical textbooks. I read first-person accounts. I watched documentary films. Um, I really try to do all of that extensive sort of homework first. And then I reach out to the medical community. So I, um, I'm very lucky. I live in the Boston area. And so we have some of the world's top physicians and scientists really local here um, between Boston and Cambridge. So I shadowed um, neurologists at the ALS clinic at Mass General. Um, I interviewed with the scientists and folks over at ALS. TDI in Cambridge. This is the only nonprofit biotech company in the world, and it's exclusively focused on ALS research. And then I came to know um, people living with ALS, and I, I came to know a lot of those folks through um, Ron Hoffman and Compassionate Care ALS, which is also in Massachusetts. Um, it's a, just a purely a care organization offering um, equipment and sort of advice and company to people who are, are going through this and wisdom, actually, because just to know what comes next in this often really fast-moving disease. Um, so I came to know really well um, 12 people with ALS in the, the year or so that I was writing this book, and um, it, it can be stunningly fast. Eight of the 12 died before I finished the final draft. Wow. I, that must be really difficult. Um just in general, but, you know, to have gotten to know these people. And then, as you said, this is such a fast moving disease. I, I can't even really imagine what that would be like. Yeah, it's hard. It's, um, you know, and it's such an honor to know these people at this sort of, you know, this is the most vulnerable, meaningful part of all of these people's lives in some ways, right? It's like, this is, this is it. Like we all only have so many days, live on this planet mm-hmm. but it really becomes crystallized when you're dealing with something like Alzheimer's or Huntington's or ALS um, but with ALS it was so much faster that, that that facing your mortality really did take center stage the way that Alzheimer's and Huntington's um, it, it's not quite the same so yes it's hard and I, I really miss so many of the people that I came to know the relationships become really intimate really fast. It isn't, you know, we're not just, oh, hey, how are you doing? Good, good, good to see you, good. It, it, it doesn't have any superficiality to it. Like, we get right down to, you know, sort of we're talking about you know, what does it feel like to live with this now? What are you worried about? What are you scared of? What do you want your legacy to be? Um, just talking about, you know, the stuff that matters. And that invites a real 
connection and intimacy. So it's, it's such a privilege to know people in that space that they invite me in and trust me with mm-hmm. sharing themselves. So while it is hard, it, it also feels I, I've been witness to so much grace and um, inspiration and really heroism. Like just, um, it, it's not it's not really entirely depressing. You know, while it's sad to lose people and this disease is brutal and, and tragic and unfair, it's, um, I've also been witness to so much love and family and connection. And it's, again, it's, um, and I, as a human being, learned so much about how to live from these folks who are facing, you know, these crises like ALS. Right. Yeah. I, you know, it's not something I know a lot about or really at all. Um, and, you know, I think there is definitely a place and a need for novels like this that examine that um, and provide that empathetic point of view. So I, I think it's really great that you have sort of taken this on as, as what you write about. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, and I, I heard this over and over with still Alice, I still hear this, the, um, I'm afraid to read it, that, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I hear it's good, but, you know, ooh, I don't know if I want to look at that, I'm a, I'm a little too afraid, or hits too close to home, or I'm not sure I have, I'm not sure I want to, I'm not sure I want to spend time thinking about this, and I get that, that's, a, that's okay, and yet, for the folks who did read still Alice, and it does take courage to read these books, Usually, at least what they tell me is that, you know, they're, it's, they're glad they did. There's a benefit to this stuff. I'm not just trying to hit you guys with stuff that's hard. It's, you know, again, becoming familiar with what's unfamiliar to giving a face and a voice to people's experiences that we may not know much about. Um, it also helps demystify things. I think there's a lot of fear around memory loss and Alzheimer's. Um, and to sort of be able to understand what it is and what it isn't and, and put a human face to that disease rather than it just being a, a, an illness or a science, um, it, humanizing it helps. And so for something like ALS, like while I hope most people don't ever have personal experience with this disease, it, um, I think learning about the disease, again, if, if you dumped a bucket of ice water over your head, that's great, and you helped raise some awareness in, a, in an intellectual way, like people know about that it exists. Right. But if, if you can read a story about it, it changes you. It it um it, it it's a knowledge that is compassionate and from the heart, not just the head. And um and you know, there's more food for thought in there too. It's not just about ALS. It's about how about forgiveness and redemption and how we can live you know lives that are that are maybe not defined by prisons of fear and and excuses. Right. I did want to ask you a little bit about um, your writing process because I, I found when I was looking at your website and on your blog that you have um, excerpts from your your writer journal, which I think is really fantastic as a reader to be able to kind of go and see what the writer was thinking in the middle of, of their writing process. So what kind of makes you want to share that with, with people? Oh, thanks. Um, well, I get this question a lot. So I'm ha- like part of the motivation is to just share some of the process because mm-hmm. I, you know I, I love meeting other writers and 
it's it's fun to be part of that community together. I also think it's just fun, like their bonus material. Like I love when I watch a DVD. And I enjoyed the movie to see some of the behind the scenes. So, um, so yeah, my process is I really don't believe in writer's block. I believe in staying in the seat. Um, so if I'm committed to writing for four hours in the morning, I'm staying in that seat and I'm not on Facebook or email or anything else. Um, and so really resisting that urge to like, oh my God, I don't know what comes next. Uh, I'm just going to get up and go do something else. So I tend not to write at home because at home it is too easy to to daydream out the window or to go see what's in the refrigerator or, <laughs> oh my God, the like, living room is totally trashed because I have three kids and I'm going to go clean that. So I, I tend to write in Starbucks because um, there's nothing else to do there but write. So I also tend to start on in a notebook and I, I got this idea from a, a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron and she calls it Morning Pages. And I write three pages of stream of consciousness just to begin. And so if you've read my blog, you see that a lot of the, my days begin with, okay, what happens next? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Don't panic. Like, you're going to find it. Like, And then it's, it's kind of dumping any anxiety that I might have or uncertainty. And a lot of times I think I don't know what's next, but it really is in there somewhere. I just have to allow for it to come out, however imperfectly. And so pen to paper allows me the room to feel like it doesn't have to be perfect. And so I can dump any personal anxieties or just sort of, it's almost like a diary in some ways. It can be at first. And then usually it loops into, okay, well, this just happened. So now we need to know more about that. And, oh, I think she says this next. And then I'll, 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 I'll hook my way in. And then I switch over to the laptop and I go. And the idea is that you can't edit nothing. So even if it comes out, it's not great at first. And it's always better than I think it's going to be. Um, just to give myself permission to write whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I, how I do it. And I, you know, I allow myself um, the idea that it can be edited later. Get the words down. And when I'm in the groove, I really try to get 1,500 words down a day. Um, and it's always easier after the halfway mark of the book, it's, all, it's like climbing a mountain. Right. And like the beginning, beginning of the novel, there's so many choices to make, and I don't really know the characters well yet, so it feels you know, really difficult to make those choices, and who are they, and how do they hold themselves, and how do they speak, and what is it, what's their backstory, and all that to figure out. But once you've made those decisions more and more, it becomes, you know them, and there are less choices to make because there are, this character would only do it or say it in a certain way. So after the halfway mark, it gets much easier. So it sounds like then that you do not outline in advance? No, I don't. And and plenty of authors do. I just recently had dinner with um, Barbara Shapiro, who wrote The Art Forger, and she outlines. And I, we, I joke with her because she's got this like magnificent, like color-coded, like it's gorgeous. This outline <laughs> must be so reassuring to have that thing. <laughs> um, but I don't do it that way. I have, and in some ways I am lucky. So many authors don't outline. And um, in some ways I'm luckier than most because I do have this thing of, I'm, I've chosen a character. So in this case I chose, well, he's going to be a concert pianist. Um, and I did that because I wanted him to have a very, uh, he's a renowned concert pianist. So he had a very 
sort of global, worldly life on a stage in front of people and celebrated for this, this talent that he has, this physical talent to be able to play piano. And then he's going to get ALS, and he's going to lose the ability to use his hands, and his big world is going to collapse into the space of a wheelchair in a bedroom. Um, but so I pick a character, and then this disease is going to happen to them. And so then it's like, okay, now what happens? Mm. And so it's, it's a little bit of following um, the relationships and, and what happens. And so the disease gives it some structure because of all that research I do, there is the truth under the imagined circumstances. So I'm, I'm, I am offering the reader, you know, what actually does happen to someone with ALS and what are the symptoms and what's the progression of the disease management. Um, and within that, I, I build the story around it. Right. So you sort of already have benchmarks about the timeline of what yeah. this looks like, and you can kind of fill in the story around that. Yeah. Like, so for example, with so Alice, I remember one of the neurologists telling me that that this disease tends to get worse month by month. But if you plot the symptoms on a graph, then day to day they fluctuate a lot. But if you plotted it over the course of a month, you'd see things overall getting worse on a month by month basis. Hmm. I thought, I thought, okay, that's interesting. That's how I'll organize the chapters. So every chapter of Still Alice is the next month. And I do, I, I, I sort of take her cognitive and, and memory abilities down a notch every single chapter. Interesting. Okay. Um, I was reading something I didn't know when I was actually preparing for this, and, and I don't know how I didn't know this, because Still Alice was such a huge book, and of course there's the movie. You originally self-published it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I like I you know we don't have a lot of authors who have self-published on our podcast and so it's always um such an interesting experience talking to them and you know I'm I'm curious how you went about doing that and then how it ended up um getting picked up by a major publishing house. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I didn't I did not want to self-publish. <laughs> I so as a as a scientist, you know, we when you publish a scientific paper it's in a peer-reviewed journal, and it either gets accepted or not, and that's the sort of the litmus test of whether your whether your experiment and what you wrote up is good enough. And so for me, I, I sent out a hundred query letters to literary agents, and um, three wanted to see the manuscript, and one I still haven't heard back from, but the other two most declined it. And I and it was like, well, you know, that so I was I really dead ended, and it was like, well maybe the book isn't good enough and I should put it in a drawer and I should go back to doing neuroscience research. Um, and this was back in 2007, so there was still a lot of stigma attached mm-hmm. to self-publishing, of course, because anyone can publish anything. So I had that fear of, like, at the time, my oldest daughter was really into American Idol. It's the, you know, the beginning of the season of that show where they showed the auditions and some of those people who think they can sing are just... <laughs> Awful. And I'm like, oh my god, am I going to be one of those writers who thinks the book is good, but it's not, it's garbage, and I just don't even know it? So I, I decided I would self-publish. I went through a company called iUniverse. They're now, I think, part of Author Solutions. Um, at the time, I paid $450 just to, for them to publish it. It was print on demand, and um, 
I was giving myself a year. And if it didn't, I wanted, I was using the self-published book as a means to get the word out to try and get the attention of an agent or publishing house. I did not want to stay as a self-published writer. Um, and I wasn't making a living off of it. Um, and I, I suppose people do now, potentially, but at, in 2007, it really wasn't feasible to make a living. So I, um, at the time, it, social media was different. It was, you know, Facebook had just barely started. I don't even know if it was a thing yet, but I was on MySpace and Shultzari and Goodreads. And so now it would be, if you're on social media, it would be all of them. Like, get on social media, have a website, which I had. And I was literally driving to independent bookstores, like, with books in, in the trunk of my car, <laughs> asking them to carry, carry it, asking book clubs if they'd read it, and if they liked it, would they post a review somewhere publicly. Um, I hired Kelly and Hall Book Publicity out of, out of Marblehead, Massachusetts, for three months, um, and they got the book, uh, the book into the hands of a um, columnist at the Boston Globe, Beverly Beckham. She wrote a piece on it, and that really changed everything. It led me to an author um, named Julia Fox Garrison, who led me to her agent, and her agent became my agent, sold the book to Simon Schuster. That's really incredible. So it took 10 months of, of being self-published. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's crazy. It's been a crazy ride. You go from utter total rejection, and then the trunk of my car, to <laughs> I got to walk the red carpet with Julia Moore at the Oscars. Uh... Yeah. What was that? I mean, like, what is that like having, you know, your book turn into a film and, and having like an Oscar winning film? Yeah. Well, so in that sense, I'm extraordinarily fortunate. So, you know, that film could have been a train wreck in in anybody else's hands. It very well could have been. Um, but everybody did a beautiful job. They all brought their best selves to that project. Um, so lucky. So I'm really proud of it. I think they did um, an exquisite job of portraying, you know, getting that book on the screen. And it's not, it's not always, um, it doesn't always work. So I'm really grateful. And it was fun. And it's also, it's such a great, it, it's so in line with my mission of you know, dragging Alzheimer's out of the closet and into people's living rooms and, and book clubs and movie theaters now, like just really making sort of monster of a disease that everyone's too afraid to talk about, to give it a vehicle so that people can talk it, talk about it. Because it's really hard to cure something if it seems not to exist. And if we're not talking about it, it doesn't exist. Like, that's what it seems like. So, you know, for us to get to a point where we have treatments and survivors for Alzheimer's, like we do for cancer, like we do for HIV, like we do for heart disease, it's really had to become an issue that the public is willing to openly talk about. And the film just did that in such a huge way. Um, so I'm so, I'm so grateful and lucky to, that, that that worked out. Have you um, gotten feedback from readers who have a personal connection to any of the things you write about and, and how they feel about it um, being portrayed in the, the books? Yeah, every day. Um, so this is one of the great joys of, of being an author today is that your readers can reach us really readily on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And um, every single day I am humbled and appreciative and, and so grateful for knowing that the books have helped people. Um, and that really was, the, is, is, was and always is the goal is, how do I 
portray the experience of these illnesses with respect and authenticity and dignity and to really humanize this experience so that we can all see how we're all connected. But, you know, there's this, this sort of otherization that can go on. Well, like, well, those people have ALS. That's not me. But they, she's dealing with Alzheimer's and I don't have that. And so it's easy to sort of disconnect. And so the point of the book is to help people see how we're all connected and to also make people feel these diseases, can, if you're living with them, it can make you feel really isolated and alienated and, and stigmatized and there's shame involved in a lot of these. And so to, to be able to read and see that your experience is shared and you're not alone and um, that there's, there's dignity in this, that it, it just really helps a lot of people. And it, I wish I had known then when my grandmother had Alzheimer's what I understand now mm. and so it's, it's a great great personal reward for me to hear from people saying you know thank you you really helped me understand my mom or you're really helping me be with my husband or I've, I've, I now see I now see how to do this in a new way um, or just thank you for for sharing our story this is our story too um, it, it means a lot. I, I, I'm so, again, I feel really fortunate. So at the end of all of our interviews, we have something we call the Nerd Nine, which are nine sort of lighthearted questions. Um, so don't put too much thought into them, okay? <laughs> okay. What was the last book you finished reading? Uh, called A Beautiful, Terrible Thing by Jen Waite. What book made you fall in love with reading? Oh, God. Um, what book made me fall in love with reading? I feel like I've always loved reading. I mean, as a little kid, I loved the Ramona, Ramona the Pest books um, in high school, so I'm such a good little nerd. I loved Shakespeare. <laughs> um, I really did. And I loved most of Dickens. Okay. I did not like David Copperfield, but I liked the rest. Um, and Oliver Sacks. Oliver Sacks is the author that it ignited my passion for neuroscience, for sure. Do you have a favorite place you like to read? Yeah, I love to read in my office at home that I never write in. <laughs> well, it has its purpose. If you can read in there, you know. Exactly. <laughs> what is one place you would like to travel to that you haven't been to yet? Oh, I'd love to go to Machu Picchu. Favorite, favorite holiday? Thanksgiving. Cats or dogs? Neither. Oh, I don't know. I've got three. <laughs> nope. I've got three kids. I don't need any pets. Um, are you a coffee or tea drinker? Tea. Uh, favorite food? Pasta. And who is one person that are alive you would like to have dinner with? Oprah. Oh, that's a good answer. Finally, what would you like readers to take away from every note played? I would like readers to have a compassionate understanding for what people with ALS live with, and I'd like them to take a look at their own lives and maybe see some of the ways that they're stuck or um, held back Again, this idea that, you know, with ALS, you lose the ability to speak eventually. And that's so terrifying for all of us to imagine. And yet, how many of us who are capable of saying anything we want? 
tell the people we need to, I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or I love you. And so maybe to think about, you know, and we all think we have forever, and we don't. So maybe it helps people get to those conversations a little sooner. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and speaking with me today. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.